Hello and welcome to the Fellowship Phase, an Adventures in Middle-Earth podcast. I'm Josh and that's Callum. We're going to give you inside information on how to find your own path through Tolkien's world. The region known as the Grey Mountain Narrows is a long strip of land separating Mirkwood from the Grey Mountains. It extends for more than 60 leagues from the river banks of the Greyland to the west to the flat Daylands to the east. While the region is from 20 to 30 miles wide for most of its length, it tapers to little more than 10 miles where the mountains and the forest almost meet. And at the opposing ends, there is the Narrows East and West Gaps. The desolate Narrows are not wholly deserted of life. Many birds, including ravens and crows, roost under the eaves of the forest. And in the past, others have dwelt there. Dwarfs dwelled into the Grey Mountains in search of wealth, but these delvings were never as rich as Erebor or Moriar. And one by one, in the past, these holes fell to dragons that came down from the withered heath. But some in these lands still seek to reclaim their long-forgotten homes. Hello. Hello. Welcome back, Stuart. Hello. Again. Our second guest on Adventures in Middle Earth. Okay. No, that's not how it works. It's, Stuart is our first guest. Guest 1. 1. 1.2? 2.0. 2.0. Uh, welcome back, Stuart, and thank you for joining <laughs> us again. Thank you for having me. We had, on the last episode, talked through your character that you've played through the whole campaign, uh, and you're one of only two people that have played the whole, the same character every single episode, actually. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. And have you been in every single episode as well? Have you have you missed any at all? I don't don't think I have. Maybe half. No, I don't think I've missed an entire episode actually. Has uh, has Torvald missed any time? This is probably a question for James. I don't know, but I don't remember. He may have done. I think there was one time he couldn't play. So it may be that Runin is the only character who has <laughs> been there the entire time. That's why my notes are so integral to the game. And I mean that is true. <laughs> <laughs> well the introduction that i read there was the description for one of the regions of wilderland which is called the gray mountain narrows and why did we choose that well we are going to talk today about the wanderer class which is a sort of equivalent of a ranger and they have certain known lands which are of critical importance and we've felt that the Grey Mountain Narrows are probably the known lands that Runin had that was maybe the most impactful in terms of journeys because you went across there several times and some significant things happened there and, and also important narratively um, for backstory reasons. <laughs> yes. It's definitely very impactful for Runin as where he lost his family, as we said in the previous episodes, and where he got ambushed by goblins when he mistakenly went off wandering by himself away from camp and then stumbled upon the actual spot where it actually happened and had a, a moment of reflection, I think, afterwards. It was a nice moment because it can reveal some of your backstory in yeah. quite an organic sense. Yeah. And I think when you came back, you ended up speaking to Carhu, one of the player characters, about it. Yeah, and it was this sort of trigger for you to reveal your, your backstory in more depth and, and role play through that, which you hadn't done to at that point. And as a result of that, those two characters came even closer. Yeah. And I think the game previously that we also left on a massive cliffhanger when Runin was just surrounded by goblins. Yes. Like, oh, yeah. I think it was you were you were you were scouting and you saw them and then you rolled a natural one on some check and yeah. There's a debate about critical fumbles, but in that situation, failing your check to scramble up or down a cliff meant you fell and landed in the middle of a big group of them. It yep. was a very dramatic cliff. Yep. It was a this great was way to finish it. off for a week. I know. And then I was just dreading, so oh, I'm going to die to these goblins, am I? <laughs> just make a big circle of the whole story. 
<laughs> you've come back there to be buried with your family. Yep. <laughs> yep. Wanderers. I am going to uh, seize control and ask questions for both of you. And this is my rationale behind it. I have never played Wanderer, nor have I ever been the lore master in the game. So I have only experienced the Wanderer you know, as a, as a member of the party watching you two interact with the rules. So I have kind of got questions for both of you about how Wanderers work. But to kick off with you, Stuart, what is the Wanderer class all about? I would say in a general sense, it's in many ways just the guide, which it says many times in the Wanderer's class in the book. And we just help guide the group on dangerous areas and regions in the lands. And they know the in and outs of the roads, safe places to stay and rest and camp. And they are the wanderers of the wild. And they can hunt, survive. Yeah. Better rangers in D&D at least. <laughs> And Callum, for you, what do you think about Wanderers as a class, just from a lore master perspective? They're hugely thematic. So I think the classic Wanderer would be Aragorn. He, yeah. You know, that's who he is. Even the episode name, Not All Those Who Wander Are Lost, you know, that's part of the uh, prophecy about Aragorn. And he talks about going into the wilds and... Uh, leading them, you know, off beaten tracks, the hobbits when he takes them. And a lot of the class features, you can see them in, you can see where they've got the inspiration from uh, the books and uh, th those characters that go on. What are so, some of the big class features that, that a wanderer gets? Well, um, some of the big class features they have are known lands, which you touched on already. And that's huge so it's kind of the defining part the defining characteristic i think so what, what do you think Stuart? i think i think known lands is, is very but if you know when you're in the wanderers known lands because it makes a big impact to the journey yeah i would say the biggest impact it lowers the peril rating for what regions you're traveling and a lot of the regions you will be traveling for lots of adventures can be quite hazardous and making it a lot easier for everyone to survive is very, very useful, I think. Yeah. And so always... you're, when you're making those decisions, we talked about this in the journey rules that, you know, it, it encourages good play, like clever play from the players. And in this situation, you're, you're wanting as a wanderer to, to go through your known lands whenever you can. And there's, there's two parts to that. One is if you go through any of your known lands, then your own events um, are easier. And if you entirely go through your known lands, then all like the, the peril rating goes down. And you also get some other advantages. So you, you get advantage against wisdom saving throws, uh, against corruption in known lands. You cannot become lost under normal circumstances. You know at least one place in each known land where you can safely take and it says a long rest. We've actually used usually ruled that as a short rest, um, yeah. generally speaking. And you have advantage on stealth checks. You can move stealthily at normal pace. And when tracking other creatures, you learn the exact number sizes. And you get more known lands at sixth and tenth level. Hmm, didn't realize it was tenth level. You're actually getting close. You're now level nine, so you might get one soon. Yeah, soon. And then hopefully I can up my wisdom modifier, which will hopefully bump that a wee bit more. Be nice. So the the wanderer class basically applies to if if we think of the game having different parts to it, there's obviously combat, which in terms of the time you as players spend is often quite a lot. But in the story, the combat's actually a very 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 small part of the narrative. There's all the role play, and then there's the exploration kind of pillar of the game. Basically, the Wanderer makes everything in that pillar of the game better. Like everything. <laughs> everything is easier and better if there's a Wanderer in the party. <laughs> it's, it's huge. The, 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 probably the closest thing in, in D&E is Natural Explorer for the player's handbook version of the Ranger. With Tasha's 
College and everything, there's updated Ranger rules, which are arguably a lot better, and they they replace Natural Explorer or something else. But um, that's got some benefits, like difficult terrain doesn't store your travel. You can't become lost, so that's that's exactly the same. Um, you remain alert to danger when you're doing other activities. You move stealthily at normal pace. When foraging, you get more food, and when tracking, you get the exact number. So some of the abilities are exactly the same, including the getting more known lands at sixth and tenth level. But I think what's different is that in D&D, there isn't the journey rules baked in and they aren't so key. And those being in the Wanderer makes it so important. So the criticism of the Ranger really is that, or, or was, that it had all these benefits, which are so situational and most of the time don't come up because you don't really do the stuff on the journey. And you don't often role play out foraging for food because you know, you just get the druid to do goodbury and suddenly everyone's full because they've had a berry a day. So why do you need the ranger to go foraging? Like that's somewhat useless. Whereas in, whereas in AIM, things are much more gritty realism. So that becomes more important. I think the rangers in D&D have suffered because, like you say, it's all very situational. Their, their abilities are all really cool, but they all require the dungeon master to have a certain type of game or the party to do to play a certain way for parties or dungeon masters to do that the rangers are great but you as the player need everyone else to kind of play your game a little bit mm. which doesn't really apply to most of the other classes whereas in aim the whole game is structured around this so whatever style your party has the journey rules are still part of the game so the wanderer still gets to do all the cool stuff what are your known lands, Rune? You've, you've added a couple recently. Uh, I, I said Rune, I should have said Stuart. I've, <laughs> I've done this before. There's <laughs> a classic thing where you're finishing a game and <laughs> instead of saying goodbye to Bert, I said, uh, I said goodbye Dior, which is his character name at that time. And I was just horribly embarrassed. <laughs> well, I can't remember which ones I added first, but I now have quite a few. I've got Northern Dale Lands, which if I pull up my map. The map is so gorgeous in the book as well. Yeah, so I actually just... don't look at it that much because as a player, I'm not a wanderer. So I don't need it mechanically for my character. And anytime I look at it, I just love it. Yeah. Because they're in kind of west and northwest of Erebor, which I thought makes sense. So that'll be on a big major route for him to travel over Markwood. Yeah. There'll be, and there's, we found when we traveled that river, there's quite a lot of towns as well that have popped up since, which is quite nice. Yeah, we can talk about them. They're, they're fleshed out quite well in the Lonely Mount, Mountain Region Guide. Hmm. We had some interesting encounters there. So you've got Northern Dale Lands, and then, Grey Mountain Narrows. Yes. Then the Upper East, no, the East Upper Vales, even. Mm -hmm. The West Anduin Vale, the Western Eaves, which I think is. Bits of a small area from memory, kind of all the territory between the Misty Mountains and Mirkwood, kind yeah. of the upper that, that strip of land, yes. And the upper marshes is my last one near Lake Town, the mysteriously named Lake Town. Stuart, do you have any sense how it came to acquire that as a name? I have no idea, it seems to be such a superfluous name for a name, town of a name that's on a lake. I'm not sure how it came there, to be honest. Maybe lake is a name rather than, it actually, maybe it's one of those things where everyone, everyone thinks it's to do with it being on a lake, but actually it's named after Mr. Lake. <laughs> we'll need to ask future guests until we get to the bottom of this. Yeah, we'll get to the bottom of that lake one day. So I, I actually really enjoy, maybe just um, to come back to what we're talking about. So the uh, your known lands, it really felt to me as the lore master when you told me them that you'd themed them around where you were traveling. Yes. You know, Runin's been wandering that area and it really set up and it also allowed me to do a couple of things. So, you know, there's those mechanical benefits, but at the beginning of the game, I sent everyone sort of known lore. So I went through the books and I thought, okay, I want people to feel like they have ownership partly of this world. So I went through all your known lands and I gave you descriptions of the terrain. I gave you descriptions of what animal life was there. And the books are brilliant for fleshing out each area and usually have nice art as well, which I put um, onto rule 20 to sort of add some theme. And if there's like 
uh, NPCs in those areas, I would give you those. So hopefully when you came into the game and we went to one of your known lands, then you would have that insider knowledge, that sort of background lore. And yeah. uh, I don't know if you refer back to that at all. Um, it was a Word document ages ago. I occasionally do. And occasionally got slightly mixed up because there's a few I think documents you sent me since. And... <laughs> It's this, yeah. Maybe you should refresh myself a wee bit on those because it was so long ago. But some of them were really detailed and in depth, which have been quite useful. Because none of it's in any of the books that I've read. So, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that's added and and fleshed out in the Ventures of Middle Earth source books, which isn't part of the lore, but it it adds a lot. And generally speaking, I I sometimes forget what is. Tolkien's lore and what's in the books and they've done a really good job of blending that in quite seamlessly yeah and especially some of the things I've Rinan has learnt especially over Grey Mountain Arrows which we hopefully will go back to is one of the main NPCs that we've met in that region which is a dwarf that is beardless called Frar the Beardless and yes. could be quite pivotal in the future hopefully and <laughs> yeah he's uh he's quite a famous npc in that area he does have a beard back now but the story of why he lost his beard is uh is a well-kept secret and um we did run into some dwarfs in the the, the top of markwood who yeah. uh, were, were slightly mad just that was, that was very fun role-playing that encounter yeah so i'm looking forward to going back to that region if we have to travel that way again just to meet Especially those crazy dwarves, actually. They were probably good fun. They were very fun. When Calum and I talked about the journey rules, I'd said partly for me as a player, it, it was like part of the game I never really felt the mechanics of because I was very rarely the guide, not, not a wonder. I never had any bonuses to it. So it was always something that happened behind the screen. I think when I really appreciated Known Lands was when we didn't go through known lands. So most of the time early on, we were in your known lands and we deliberately went that way because you were the guide and it made sense. And you were like, hey, I know the safe route this way. The first time we went somewhere that wasn't your known lands and it was everything was more difficult because we couldn't find somewhere safe to rest. The peril rating was higher. We rolled bad journey events. We struggled to find food. That was the point that as the, the character uh, of Theodric and as the player, I was like, whoa, wait, I, I now understand why Runin is so good at this. You make it look easy, but going through dangerous places without someone who knows what they're doing, it's in the game really tough. I think that showed how good Runin was and how good the rules are, that as soon as you, you go somewhere slightly off the map, off the beaten track, yeah. you appreciate uh, how dangerous it is. And that segues nicely into the, you know, obviously the known lands are a big part of the class feature, but even outside your known lands, Runin is, is really powerful. So the next ability that they have is Ways of the Wild. You have advantage on all wisdom survival ability checks when tracking others. When acting as a guide, you can fill all vacant roles and uh, as you get to sixth level, you become even better in fighting. So you're taught that you have to strike fast. So you get advantage uh, on your first round of attacks in combat. If you get to 14th level, you can no longer be amished. Amished? That's a different thing. <laughs> no longer be ambushed. <laughs> very different no thing. Amish me. You can no longer be ambushed and cannot be surprised in the Wilderland. Yeah. Uh, which is which is huge. It's, I guess it's like the alert feat in... Uh, yeah, I had never read that that line there about the 14th level because I'm not really even thinking that far ahead. So how has that played out, the um, tracking? Have we done much tracking? I'm trying to think. There's been a few times when we were tracking the the Vaulters people. Oh, yeah. Yes. And trying to we distinguish people on horseback as well a couple of times. Yeah. And I just distinctly remember and I always forget in this in the ways of a wild for advantage on your first round of combat only happens in the wild which i always yes. forget about <laughs> yes you're tying in the wild because there's sometimes discussions like because we, we're prone to forgetting rules as everybody is so we're i think i'm conscious and you're conscious that we need to remember that rule 
And one, there's often times where you haven't rolled advantage. And I'm like, you should roll advantage the first round of combat. And then one or other of us is saying, we're not in the wilds. Yep. And then there comes into Christian is like, you're like, is this the wilds? <laughs> Looking around. Ask that. <laughs> what makes something the wilds? Outside. Outside, yeah. Yeah. Um, so you also get a fighting style. Uh, which yeah. fighting style is Rune taken? He took archery because um, to go into some of Rune's stats, his strength is quite high because he's a dwarf and I think he gets extra bonus to strength and constitution. But as a wanderer, I wanted him to be basically good at everything to survive as best he can because his decks are still pretty good. So to balance that, I gave him plus two to archery to make him equally as good as Vabo as with melee weapons. Yeah, that's cool. It feels in keeping of rangers as a a kind of an archetype and of Aragorn in particular, who you see yeah. obviously in the in the books wielding a bow and a sword very successfully. Yeah. Yeah, Runin is is pow- is powerful in combat, I would say. He's consistently hitting and doing damage. And he maybe doesn't have the um things like action surge and some of the more combat specific yeah. abilities, but he he's reliable there and getting the extra attack that you you pick up at fifth level really helps with that. Yeah. The advantage is really useful when we are in the wild. And plus the axe, which we talked about in a previous game, doing one damage if I miss. And I think I've also unlocked the next bit of that weapon where on a critical hit, I do an extra die, the extra D8 of damage. Which is yeah, what fun. is that weapon again? That's that's the dwarven axe. <laughs> yeah. Are you starting to doubt yourself having given this? Uh, <laughs> where, where, where did you find that again? Oh, I can't remember. Is that the Gladheim axe? Yeah, the Gladheim axe, yeah. Yeah. That was just quite a shame because I also found a sword of Eofed a while ago, which was quite important for Runin because we found that in a, a hoard of treasure of the Eofed. And it was described to me that this treasure hoard dwarves had a, a some part of a take and they felt what was the whole story behind that? It was like we killed the dragon or something? Uh, yeah, we should we'll maybe go on to that in a future episode. We'll talk about the City of the Eofed adventure, which was the first sort of big adventure. But long story short, yes. So there was a, a dragon called Scaffa who attacked the City of the Eofed, who are the sort of the pre-Rohan before they went down south. And this guy called Fram killed the dragon. And when he did that, the dwarves came and said, the dwarves of the Great Mountains came and said, well, he's this dragon's taken a load of our treasure. And the, the men of the Uthed, um, they said, no, it's ours. And there was tension there because the dwarves felt they were owed something, but they hadn't fought the dragon. It's, it's actually, there's an interesting similarity there between uh, Thorin and company taking yep. taking yep. back Erebor and everyone turning up demanding their share of the treasure and them saying no. So, yeah, there's some lore about the dwarves of the Grey Mountains wear dragon teeth necklaces as a sign that they still haven't forgotten this this slight. So I always role played thought that if there was a Rohan character and met one of these people, then they would be mistrustful of them from the get-go. So it's really interesting you have this sword, but and there's a there's a Rohan character. I, I'd forgotten that you had that. I know I don't think I've even shown it to Dior, the character that's from Rohan at all, because Runin doesn't really use it. He just keeps it sheathed tied to his back the whole time. And he doesn't want anyone else to use it or have it because this is his item now. It's, it's his property. That's a really great role-playing thing. Yeah, and you don't know what abilities the password has of any. Which nope. <laughs> <laughs> is hilarious. They're written down somewhere on roll 20. I'll need to dig them out if you ever do give them to someone. Else. Yeah. So natural watchfulness. You double your proficiency bonus for perception if you're bonus if you're proficient in perception, which you really should be. Yes. Whether, whether traveling, exploring, even resting. So so basically you're getting expertise in perception, which is brilliant. And actually, I forgot to mention the known lands, you have uh, your proficiency bonus is doubled if you're in your known lands and intelligence or wisdom checks. Yeah. This is definitely a rule I always forget. We should just set it up as, as expertise on roll 20. Yeah, I probably be the simplest thing to do, I guess. <laughs> That's really powerful. So you end, you can end up with quite a few different expertise there. Yeah. It's quite powerful because it's only at second level as well. So, yeah. 
And then at third level, you get Wanderer Archetype. Yes. It's the big moment, really, isn't it, for all the, the, the classes, is when you get to third level and you get to pick a, an archetype, a subclass. So before we go into the Wanderer Archetypes, let's just mention the other thing you get at third level, which is Rumor of the Earth which is oh yes 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 yeah. it's such a cool ability <laughs> definitely yeah. talk about it. do you want to talk about this you use this a lot and i i often i think every time you say it like you say i'm going to do this and i'm like how does that work again <laughs> 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 i find it really hard to remember so you uh you have you got it there because yeah and um, whenever i use this ability i always remember that scene in the film where aragorn is putting his ear to the ground and listening yes. to urukai running away with Merry and Pippin and that's always how I imagine Rune doing putting his ear to the ground and um, the way this works is between each long rest you make a DC 15 wisdom survival ability check and on a success the low master must give you a useful piece of information about a quarry that you're hunting or if you get a 25 or higher the information gleaned may very well be near miraculous to others which has happened <laughs> once, I believe, actually. It did happen, yeah. And yeah. Uh, I remember Callum had to spend quite a bit of time trying to figure out what would be a near miraculous piece of information. Yep. Yeah, I think I gave you like exact numbers of people that were and like extra fluff and yeah. loads of information. And it, that's particularly interesting reading that back now, because if you're in your known lands, you've got double your proficiency bonus, don't you? I've never noticed. Yes, you do. <laughs> so. That suddenly that becomes quite a hard thing to fail. It's yeah. only once per long rest, yeah. so you end up not getting to use it very often. Yeah. But I only use it if I feel like I need to. Because there might be a chance later in our adventuring phase where you might actually need it. So that's been very important on several occasions to, to yeah. find information. Yeah, there have been some really cool moments when you've done it. Yeah. And that has been useful when we had both Runin and our other wanderer player character in the in the group because mm. then you had two people that could possibly do it which has been pretty good yeah i i also remember occasions where you mechanically can't do it anymore but thematically and role play wise you've done it which has been which has been fun yeah um as a flavor to your perception checks yeah and i do also remember once because it was a critical failure i rolled a one and i just role played it as i got like a fly or a beetle in my eye and i just Kind of slapping my face the whole time and didn't mean anything. <laughs> yeah, you're very good at doing that when you do a, a, a failure and uh, role playing out. Um, so that's rumor of the earth. So wonder archetype. So there's two options: yes. hunter of beasts or hunter of shadows. So which one did you go for? I toiled when I first had to pick this, but eventually I went with hunter of shadows. And I think this is the first time ever when I was making this character where I went with something that I thought could be more useful. Because when I, when I looked at Hunter of Beasts, I really wanted to... I remember talking to you, Callum, about trying to get a, a goat for a mount. Oh, Incredible. yeah. Incredible. That was my main basis of maybe going with Hunter of Beasts. But in the end, I was like, I'm not sure how easy it would be always to have a goat with me the entire time. <laughs> So I went with so Shadows. many times it would not have been easy. <laughs> yeah, but just imagine going into Gundabad. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> it's like shush. <laughs> right, and you and a raven and a goat in Gundabad. <laughs> that would have been hilarious. Yep, I would have made sneaking very difficult. But yeah, I went with Hunter of Shadows, which I've enjoyed playing because. Um, this makes you slightly better at combat, especially against enemies of uh, basically yeah, shadow enemies. So any kind of most enemies you face in Tolkien's world. Yeah, any creature that willingly serves the Lord of Mordor. Yeah. So I get plus two to damage. And I also got proficiency in the Shadow Lord skill, which has been actually quite useful because it didn't have yeah. And then at seventh level, jumping forward a bit for Hunter Shadows, you get revenge. Whenever a servant of the enemy successfully attacks you, you can, as a reaction, make a single attack against them in return. That has been very clutch. Yes, especially in some very dicey situations where a lot of the party was on low health and I just 
decided to take the dodge action and when someone attacks me, I can attack them back, which has been very, very useful. And just to finish off under shadows, so this is jumping ahead again. So at level 11, you can choose one of the following. And we were talking about this the other day because you were mentioning that you were going to get this. And I, I don't think I've ever really read the high level abilities yeah. for most of the classes. I, I've not really put that thought because I've never had to build a character. So, yeah. so what, do you want to talk us through those two? Because you, you were quite excited about one of them, I know. Yeah, there's um, at 11th level, you can choose between two. And one of them is Bane, which is uh, once per turn, when you hit a servant of the enemy, you can deal an extra D8 radiance damage. And furthermore, if you're using a torch against undead or evil spirits or wraiths, which we've encountered a few of now we have. in the campaign, you deal 1D12 radiant damage instead of a torch, which is huge. Because yeah. in this, basically you have non-magic weapons and magic weapons, and you're going to be doing... E bludgeoning, slashing, or piercing damage of a non-magical or magical sort. That's, generally speaking, all the damage types you're going to get. We had very extensive discussions about fire arrows at the beginning of the game, which are <laughs> not possible to make, but not, maybe we'll revisit that one day. Uh, and people have used torch in combat before, and it's always a bit tricky to know how they work. This is yeah. so thematic for Aragorn at, at uh, Amonhen. Yeah. And... It's, yeah, that's really, really powerful. Really powerful. It's annoyingly it's something I'm not sure if it fits with Runin. It would definitely fit very well with Malbeth if he's yes. still going down this route. But the other one, which is called Whirlwind Attack, and as an attack, as an for your action, you make a melee attack, and any number of creatures within five feet of you, each one gets hit, and I make a separate. Wow. Attack, which just puts me in mind of Bomber in the film where he's in the yes. barrel, he's just spinning on the spot. Especially when if you miss them, you still get <laughs> oh, yeah. to take an attack. And it's not it's not like a number of uses, it's every turn. Yep. So you just charge in, get surrounded by goblins, and then potentially make what's the maximum number of people that could be within five feet of you. If you're on eight. a grid, eight. Eight attacks. Yeah. If I've got the great dwarven great spear, could that be... I was weak. just thinking that. It does say within five feet of you. Oh, we've, we've, we've learned the rule. Oh, let's 10 seconds later. How can we break the rule? How can we completely so twist broken. this? <laughs> Make 15 attacks. Yep. It'd be more than that. I don't even know how many it would be. Yeah. So um, Maybe that's yeah. our competition for this week is email in with how many attacks could you make if every square within five and 10 feet were filled? If Runin leaves the station at four miles an hour and the Balrog <laughs> is going, no, that's that's a different mathematical puzzle. I want to ask about journey rules and journey roles, and I want to ask you, Stuart, because we talked about it from a, a kind of broad game perspective and what it's like being on journeys, which are obviously kind of a core part of the game. I talked about it as a player, as just someone who's on the journey and to me, it doesn't feel like a very mechanical process. It feels very narrative that Callum is describing the environment and we interact with it. Yeah. I wondered if it was different for you. You're almost always the guide because Runin is so good in the wild. What do you think about the mechanics of the journey and how you interact with them? Um, I always find them quite interesting because I think, Callum, you definitely you've got some tables that you maybe set up before each time we leave from different regions we're in and I can't I think our role was a couple of d12s and then sometimes a d6 or d4 must change I guess and that kind of creates a new story almost each time that we head out which has been always quite fun so I'm privy and not privy to whatever that's going to be <laughs> and I can't I always kind of end up yeah I always end up playing the role of a guide and according to rules, I can always use, take up any of the other rules, which was it a hunter, scout, and lookout. So the other rules when we're on an adventure. And it's always been fairly straightforward. We do have the occasion, oh, for a long time, when we're doing this check, you always have to have your survival bonus. Which for <laughs> a long time, we realized we were doing wrong. Because the wording of it in the book is quite 
confusing. Yes. Hopefully we've cleared that up for everybody else. Um, maybe nobody else that plays this game has ever made that mistake and it's just something specific to us. Maybe it's a, is it a Scottish thing? Who knows? Yeah. So, um, <laughs> I don't know. Hopefully, if you listen to our episode on the journey rules, we've we've made that clear. Or in second edition, it probably will be different, to, let's be fair. So, yeah, the interaction between the journey rules and, and Wanderer is really important for the smooth running of the game. We've not often had journeys. It, I find it hard, particularly now that you're level nine, to challenge you. And the main way to do that is to have really long journeys that wear you down and have a high peril rating. So the DC events are, are high, lots of journey events, lots of small chipping away, making things difficult, no opportunities to rest. But even then, you know, you're rolling really high on the embarkation rolls. I've, I think, you know, I do wonder sometimes when, you know, you get such big bonuses the number of times you've rolled 12s or gotten a 12 on the embarkation roll, it does make me think a bit, you know, is this, does this work? But I think it does. It's just that you are all very cautious and, and, and smart about how you approach these situations. And there has been times where it's gone badly wrong. I am intrigued to see how it would work if there wasn't a wanderer in the group and you did a journey event, you know, did a journey and, you know, it was, it was a difficult, you know, how would that affect it? It was suddenly become so much more difficult. It might be hard for me to balance actually, because I'm so used to just being able to throw everything at you and you just be like, oh, it's fine. We've got honey cakes and ponies. I have thought about this quite a lot. So I've, I've said before, and I've said to you, Stuart, multiple times, that I think of Runin as the superhero in the group who is consistently saving our ass from problems just by being good at everything. Um, and I like what you said before. I think it's a very fair point that Runin is kind of good at everything. He's probably the member of the party who, if he was on his own, he would still be able to function fine in the wild, in a little bit of combat, looking for food, whatever. He wouldn't have a problem with any of it. Whereas all the other characters would probably struggle with some element of, of that. I had wondered for a while if the Wanderer is too powerful in aim like, is it that oh every party has to have a wanderer they're the best class you know it, it, the whole game's built around it but i came to the conclusion that no because by having you play runin yeah. one part of our party an entire character in our party is dedicated to this but it means they're not dedicated to anything else if we took a, a wanderer out and swapped you out and you played as a warrior um Yes, the journey elements would be more difficult, but then when you throw combat as Callum, the combat would be much easier because we'd have another martial player involved. Or if or if Stuart played as a scholar, for instance, the journey would be harder, but we'd have so much more healing. So it it feels like he's super powerful, which he is, but the sacrifice, I suppose, that you've made is that you are good at the journey element of the game and rely on the other players to be better in combat yeah definitely how it feels on my end where i deliberately made him so that he's just a good all-rounder but he doesn't have any specializing expertise in any one particular thing which has annoyed me especially for stealth because slightly <laughs> comes a dwarf and he's meant to be good at stealth but i never roll well and his modifier is like okay which is probably the one annoying thing is i think my highest modifier is only like a six or a seven for level eight, yeah, yeah. Like, we should go through your character sheet and make sure that we've applied all these, um, or or just remember to apply the double proficiency bonuses, yeah. on all these checks. I used to remember, but I think it's also been a while since I was in known lands as That's well, true. where so we spent a lot of uh, a lot of this this calendar year, this real world year. Yeah on a very long adventure to Gundabad, which has not been a safe place for anyone. Yeah. So maybe that's why it feels like I just haven't used it at all because I haven't been able to. Some other features you get later on, which we'll just skim over quickly. So level eight, you get poison resistance. That's come up a lot. Yeah. Uh, level nine, you get trackless steps. You can't be tracked, which... I'm looking forward to that. Yes. You've not, you're not, you've just, you've just got to level nine. Yes. Because I was suddenly reading that and being like, oh, I've messed this up. 
Um, no, you didn't. <laughs> Are you have suggesting that, that so our party has been? You. That's fine. Has our has our party been tracked this no. entire time? Is that what you're no. telling us? <laughs> um, you can hide. Are we being tracked sight? right now? Wow, you get plus ten bonus to stealth checks. Yes, what? you need that. <laughs> yeah, hide in plain sight. It's gonna be wow. It's kind of like um um. Uh, what's the ranger ability? That gives you plus ten to stealth. Oh, um, pass without a trace yeah. spell. So it's basically that, but you spend I think it's like ten minutes or something. Yeah. Which that's cool. Be really, really useful. Unflagging. When you get to level thirteen, you can. You basically exhaustion counts as two level lower. That's that huge. That's absolutely huge. So you just ignore the first two levels of exhaustion, essentially. That's pretty good. Vanish. You can bonus action hide. Wow. Blight word. You reduce the number of shadow points you gain from blighted areas by one. That's not. I don't think that's huge for level seventeen. But yeah. Uh, Secrets in the wind. You can you can learn news from far away of friends or foes. So you basically hear news on the wind. Wow. That's okay. that's good. You get to know where they are and what they're doing and how they are. And in a level twenty, which. Maybe we'll get to one day. Who knows? Uh, you always roll max damage on attacks. You don't roll for damage. You always do max damage. That's. I didn't even know that was a thing. That's I've never read that before. Yeah. I think the fact that all of the things you've listed, the higher level things, apply to different elements of the game shows how varied the Wanderer is. I'm playing, at the moment, Halmir, uh, Warrior, and was leveling up to nine, as we did recently, and I was looking ahead every single one of the steps improves his abilities in combat. And he becomes more and more specialist at killing things in combat, at protecting himself in combat, at protecting others in combat. But that's it. It, it, it narrows the higher you go. You get better and better at one thing. Whereas there, you're talking about avoiding exhaustion. You're talking about improving stealth. You're talking about improving damage. That The Wanderer, Runin, will get consistently better at everything. Yeah. Other members of the party will become more specialist, and so Runin probably won't ever be the best at a given thing, but he will be better than everyone else on average at everything, which is, I think, is really good. It feels like Aragorn as well, but yeah. he's going to end up being good at any task the Fellowship faces. Yeah, he's just the idyllic kind of survivor of yes. the situation. Like when Aragorn gets dragged off the cliff by the warg, he somehow still survives and gets his way back to... Yeah, Runin would survive. Yeah. Room is a five. He'd be fine. <laughs> and then the Hunter of Beasts is the other archetype. And we won't go read through that, but essentially you're really good at shooting things. There's some really interesting, damn it. There's some real great synergy with having archery fighting style and being good of a bow. Yeah. Uh, and the final feature you get for Hunter of the Shadows is defense against the shadows, where you can stand against the tide of Unbreakable Will or Uncanny Dodge, which is from uh, D&D. So there's lots of other abilities in there which become really powerful. We're, we're skimming over the higher level stuff because, and this is something that's discussed in the AIM Reddit a lot, and I think is a struggle, is that it's a game designed for lower level play. I remember once on, on AIM there was a discussion about actually, you know, the game's not really designed to be played above really 10th level because... Yeah. You know, people like Aragon, if we're talking about his example, he's probably like a level 15 adventurer. And you don't, you know, who are these people to turn up and be better than Aragon? You know, that seems a bit unreasonable. So whether you do that in a different age, I, I, you know, I, at the end of the day, I think it's your game. So do what you want. So we've been, and we'll definitely have an episode and have Brendan on as a guest about, you know, how can you adapt the game? How can you change it a little bit to make that sort of higher level, higher difficulty play reasonable what you do with the enemies like and, and there's there's a lot there's a lot to un unpack there i think there's an interesting question for the second edition because one of the big strengths of aim is that they've taken a world that people like with tolkien and they've taken a game that is pretty accessible in fifth edition D D and put them together but fifth edition D D, once you get up to like 18th 19th 20th level the the sort of magic and abilities you have can like change the world like you you can change events in the past and you can like fold space and time but in tolkien's world that there's nothing that's really comparable to that a, a 20th level spellcaster would be one of the named characters 
in the book. So it feels another one of these things where they've kind of put the system in because it's a good system, but mm. don't really use all of it. Yeah. And I think I find it a bit difficult to say, you know, the game stops level 10. It's like, well, why did you print <laughs> 10 levels? <laughs> why because as a player, that is really like you. I know people read ahead and they're thinking, oh, that'd be really get, good to get at this point. And, and you know, you maybe not finish the, the characters and you want to have progression. Like the one ring role playing game doesn't really have that sort of progression. You you get new skills and so on, but no matter how experienced they are, they're still, I think, two wounds away from, from the possibility of death. You know, it's really very um, punishing. And so combat's never that big a part of it. And I've, you know, it's been a struggle, but we've managed to get to a point where it can be really difficult, like the hundred goblin situation. You know, if you just throw enough goblins at someone, <laughs> you'll threaten them. Uh, so we've talked through the wonder of things. What, is there anything else that we want to to touch on? What 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 advice for other players, uh, Stuart? If you're wanting to make a wonder, what what would you suggest? I would say. Don't get too daunted by the rules and the features for especially like known lands and the ways of the wild for the beginning of uh, Wanderers because there's a lot to learn for a start, which I definitely learned at the beginning. And just talk to your low master and they can hopefully help you just keep on track and willing to also lean heavily into the role play of it which is always good fun but each person will play these games differently but in this especially in aim i think role play is quite important and for wonder especially in tolkien's world i've really enjoyed it so i'd say just go with flow and also you don't have to go do nadine i would say for wonder which is what i was Gonna do because it's Aragorn and Dunedain and Wonder just are perfect synergy, uh, which is why I thought, why don't you make a dwarf for Wonder? Doesn't really make sense to me. Why not do it? Makes, it makes perfect him, sense to me now. Yeah. It makes him so unique, and his backstory ties so well into it. Like when you were telling the story of why Runin is wandering the lands at yeah. the beginning, and can't like that's such a great story, and makes him such a great character, and it's almost. You know, we have these fantasy tropes and I don't think we often use them. We're a playgroup where people often try and do the funny thing or the weird thing with the with the characters. And sometimes that fantasy, you know, Halmy or Josh's current character is, you know, he's a warrior, he's from Minas Tirith, he uses his shield and his sword. But that that works really well as a character because yeah. there's that archetype there and you can lean really into it. And then there's a whole role-playing thing. But then sometimes having it like a really unusual combination uh, can also work. And I guess Dwarf and Wanderer isn't a, a very unusual one. I'm trying to now suddenly think what is a what was the most unusual combination of culture and class? What's the, what's uh, the one you're like? Slayer Hobbit. Yes, there we go. Which is one of my ideas for a future This <laughs> <laughs> is so... It's because I'm going to... What's the name of the, the old famous Hobbit who hit the head of... Oh, Bandabras Took. Yeah, and created golf. Yes, he's not the head of golf and ball. Imagine uh, if we did a, a a one shot, which was which was that, so that the aim of the one shot was to create the situation where we created golf. I can see cogs are working in Callum's head now, trying to figure I have some out ideas how we could for do this as a one shot. There, there's there's not very many sort of important events that the hobbits are heavily involved with. But one of them is the uh, Siege of Fornost when the company of archers from the Shire went north to fight uh, in the defence of Fornost Sedain, the end of the kingdom of Arthedain, part of Arnor. Uh, I think that's really... There's actually a, a reference to it in the new One Ring role-playing game. Uh, there's a sort of mini adventure related to that. It's not obviously set then, but there's some connections to it. And I think that's quite an interesting story. It's an interesting story. I love the idea of little snapshot one shots. Maybe that's something that we could appeal to our listeners. If there are little snippets of Tolkien's lore, it would be great to brainstorm just you know one-off one-shot sessions that you could do with the aim rules. So if you can think of any, then let us know. Yeah, we did the we'll... dwarf one-shots, which I think worked really well. 
don't know what characters we had and that was there any really unusual ones we had a, a dwarven scholar called Dolphnir, who <laughs> was then his father turned up later or he was the son of the that person's player yeah. character who was just really nerdy wonderful dwarf there was a slayer there was someone who had like a, a bit of iron in their skull as well whole nur iron skull wasn't it yeah and there's a really old dwarf as well from memory oh yes that was scott's uh, character and he, he had a very silly voice yep uh dwarfs are brilliant i i love having dwarfs in the campaign and interacting with them and role-playing them as npcs as well they can they can be really interesting because usually you start out as suspicious and then if you approach them in the right way then they can be really sound friends and i think that's that's running all over and he's he's a wanderer but he's he's certainly not lost to hark back to the the episode title yeah Uh, well well played i enjoy that well, thanks again, Stuart, for, for joining you. It's been wonderful to have you on and, and to get your your insight and knowledge and hear about Runin. And I'm sure we'll be having you back at some point in the future on a topic of your of your choosing. I'll have a think. I don't, I don't know too much, but I'll crack my brain and see what's in there. Okay, so we've talked about Wanderers. We've talked about your experience of Wanderers, some advice, and how they fit into the journey rules. I think we've We've covered a lot there. No emails except on party business. And comments, suggestions and questions to thefellowshipphase at gmail.com. The long year turns to its close much we have accomplished these last seasons. Our fellowship disbands, but is not broken, and we will return on the next episode of The Fellowship Phase.